you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here in their great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks for coming in, guys. Remember, we're the family that loves you, but we don't judge you. So always tell your friends and families to subscribe to the Chris Voss Show podcast. They can go to Apple and all those great places they can do it. Go to goodreads.com, fortunate Chris Voss. See everything we're reading or reviewing over there. Go to our uh, YouTube channel at youtube.com, fortunate Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. Go to our big group on uh, LinkedIn of 132,000 people. And also see our LinkedIn newsletter. It's killing you over there it's just crazy what's going on with linkedin these days they're kind of becoming a thing if you will at least not with the kids though not that tiktok but with the uh, grown-ups say eh? people that are adults say eh? i don't know that just offended half of the tiktok audience we lost like all two of them so we're excited to announce my new book is coming out it's called beacons of leadership inspiring lessons of success in business and innovation it's going to be coming out on october 5th 2021 and i'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book it's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories lessons my life and experiences in leadership and character i give you some of the secrets from my ceo entrepreneurial toolbox that i use to scale my business success innovate and build a multitude of companies i've been a ceo for uh, what is it like uh, 33 35 years now we talk about leadership the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. Or order the book wherever fine books are sold. Anyway, guys, we have an amazing author on the show. He's the author of the book that came out on, let me pull this up here, I had the Kindle version up, August 10th, 2021. The book was called Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. Randall Balmer is on the show with us today. He's an amazing, brilliant mind. He's a prize-winning historian and Emmy Award-winning nominee. He holds the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth, the oldest endowed professorship at Dartmouth College. He earned the PhD from Princeton University in 1985 and taught as a professor of American religious history at Columbia University for 27 years before coming to Dartmouth in 2020 or 2012. My apologies. He has been a visiting professor at Princeton, Yale, Northwestern, and Emory Universities, and in the Columbia University Graduate System of Journalism. He's a visiting professor at Yale Divinity School from 20, or I'm sorry, 2004 to 2008. Randall, welcome to the show and all my problems I'm having with numbers this morning. <laughs> Good to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm going to like dyslexic here. I don't know what's going on with the numbers there. So give us your plug so people can find you on the... I have a website. It's called... Uh, it's www.randallbalmer, Randall with two L's, Balmer with one L, dot com. Mm -hmm. And what motivates you want to write this book? Well, it's actually... Uh, goes back a long, long time. I actually grew up within evangelicalism, what I call the evangelical subculture. My father was a minister for over four decades in the evangelical free church. And I honor both his ministry and his memory. And I grew up 
within that world. This was, uh, I'll put my evangelical credentials up against anybody, including Franklin Graham, although his father was probably a bit more uh, famous than mine was. But uh, nevertheless, this is my world. And in the 1970s, actually, I spent the really the entire decade uh, very much in the core of this evangelical subculture. That is to say, I was a student at an evangelical uh, college, Trinity College in Deerfield, Illinois. And then I went on and uh, worked at the Divinity School on the same campus while doing a master's degree at Trinity Divinity School. And this was the time when the religious right got going. And Mm -hmm. I remember those years very well. And what I don't remember was that evangelicals were all abuzz about abortion. And years after that, I started hearing that abortion was why evangelicals became politically active in the 1970s. And it it just didn't compute with me because that was not my experience at all. And I'm sorry, this answer is probably longer than you want here, but the real catalyst was my being invited to a gathering in Washington, D.C. in November of 1990. And turns out I arrived there and it was a kind of who's who of the religious right. Ralph Reed was there, the executive director of the Christian Coalition. Carl F.H. Henry, the founding editor of Christianity Today magazine. Richard Land from the Southern Baptist Convention was there. Uh, Donald Wildman, the founder of the American Family Association. Richard Vigory, the conservative direct mail guru. And Paul Weirich, who's really uh, the architect of the religious right. And I wasn't exactly sure why I was invited there, kind of pieced it together since then. But here I am in this room. And in the course of the first session, Paul Weirich, the architect of the religious right, made this impassioned speech. And he said, let's remember that this movement, meaning the religious right, did not mobilize in opposition to abortion. Abortion had nothing to do with the roots of the religious right. And so I perked up. And during that break, right after that session, before the next session, I went to Weirich and I said, I want to make sure sure I understood you correctly. Abortion had nothing to do with the genesis of this movement. He said, absolutely not. He said, I've been trying since the Goldwater campaign back in 1964 to get evangelicals interested in politics. I tried everything. He said, I tried the school prayer issue. I tried the pornography issue. I tried women's rights issue. I tried abortion. Nothing got their interest until in the 1970s, the IRS began to threaten the tax-exempt status, racially segregated evangelical institutions. That's what got them going. It was BYU, I think, and it was the big college guy. I forget which corrupt guy it was, but it was one of the it was one of the Christian colleges, wasn't it? That was the big. Uh, Bob Jones University was the was the particular target. Yes. Yeah. But also the segregation academies, and of course Jerry Falwell, who was one of the arguably the most visible leader of the religious right, particularly in the nineteen seventies, had his own segregation academy in in Lynchburg, Virginia. Yeah. And that's when this whole kind of movement started. I think Ann Nelson wrote about this too in her book, Shadow Network. We had her on the show and how the Betsy DeVos organization and her father really was the starter of it for the centers of national policy. I think if I have that right. Yeah. And they did a whole testing of all these, like you say, all these different ways to get out the vote for Republicans and abortion was a sticking one. And in the end, they really don't care about it, especially if you look at how the red states use abortion more than anyone else. So it's kind of interesting. They just found the lightning rod of what would motivate voters and 
and they've been running with it ever since. In fact, I often wonder if they ever, if they really want Roe versus Wade overturned, because if they ever did, it might, it might end up they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have anything to get out of the vote. I don't know. Yeah. I I think you can make that case. And as I say, I don't remember if I said in the book, but I've certainly said on other occasions, for the leaders of the religious right, the abortion issue was really a godsend. That is to say, it allowed them to deflect attention from the real origins of their movement, Hmm. which was, I mean, to put it in in the plainest terms, a defense of racial segregation. And they were able to to kind of, with sleight of hand, kind of take a more elevated uh, topic as their signature issue. And if you even if you even look at how they present it, they try and accuse minorities of having higher abortion rates. But when it, I, if I'm correct, you correct me if I'm wrong, yes. I, I believe there's more white people using uh, abortion, especially in the red states. I believe that's true. I haven't looked at the figures uh, themselves. I mean, what I can tell you, and this is fairly well established, is that the abortion, since the Roe v. Wade decision, the abortion rates during Democratic presidencies as opposed to Republican presidencies <laughs> is far lower. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty interesting how that works during those times. Huh? And, that, and that's, that's probably uh, primarily due to economics. So what did you find there? Was their real agenda, you, you mentioned their real agenda was other items. Was it just the racial control? Is that about white power in America, the original sin of America, racism, or were there other uh, aspects involved? Well, I think there's, there was a, a kind of a menu of grievances, but, you know, again, the, the, the catalyst was a defense of racial segregation. As you say, America's original sin, which we still haven't atoned <laughs> for, we still haven't addressed yeah. adequately. But and that was clearly the provocation. And I'll give you one example of this. Well, first of all, let's go back to the, the years surrounding the Roe v. Wade decision. 1968, Christianity Today magazine, the flagship magazine for evangelicalism, with another evangelical organization called the Christian Medical Society, convened a conference over several days to discuss the morality of abortion. Mm-hmm. And these are you know the heavyweight theologians of the evangelical world. And at the end of that conference, they issued a statement saying, well, we really can't decide whether or not abortion should be morally uh, wrong or or whether it is morally wrong, but we think it should be available. Mm -hmm. Southern Baptist Convention, not exactly known as a hotbed of liberalism, (laughs) passed a resolution in 1971 calling for the legalization of abortion, which they reaffirmed in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 1976. And I could go on and on. I'm happy to do that. But uh, one final bit of evidence. Jerry Falwell, by his own admission, did not preach his first anti-abortion sermon until February 24th, 1978. That's more than five years after the Roe v. Wade decision. So, you know, that I, I call this the abortion myth. The abortion myth is the fiction that the religious right galvanized as a political movement in opposition to Roe v. Wade. It's, it's, it's simply not true. Yeah, I, and I know that the Center for National Policy, Betsy DeVos and her father, I guess, who founded I think her father was in the Nixon administration or advised the Nixon administration. They've been um, for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, their, their big 
play has been to fill the SCOTUS court. And they're really, there's an umbrella underneath them of like, I think 250 packs or political agendas. I mean, they, there's a whole team of, that has agendas. They're very secretive. And, and they just found that abortion was the thing that got out the vote that they could use to whip up that lightning rod. And uh, so you talk in the book about how that's been used ever since. It has. And the way that came about, actually, was sort of an accident. It really was the 1978 midterm elections. And what happened was that Paul Weyrich, the as I said earlier, the, the architect of the religious right, went to the head of the Republican National Committee. At that time was Bill Brock, a former senator from Tennessee. And Weyrich asked Brock for money to organize to try to mobilize evangelical voters. And according to Weyrich, uh, Brock looked across the, ta- the desk at Weirich and said, are you crazy? Who are these people? I'm not going to give you this money. And Weirich then resolved to go out and elect some rather un- improbable people in 1978. These, this was his, his intentions. And uh, what happened was in four Senate races in 1978, one in New Hampshire, one in Iowa, two in Minnesota. One of them was for Walter Mondale's unexpired term because Mondale was vice president. The final weekend of the campaign pro-lifers, that is Roman Catholics, leafleted church parking lots. And two days later, in an election with a very low turnout, all four favored Democratic candidates lost to Republicans. And I remember reading through Weirich's papers out at the University of Wyoming in, in Laramie, and it's like almost it's almost like the papers started to sizzle because he realized he finally had the issue that was wow. going to galvanize grassroots uh, evangelicals. Even so, Frank Schaefer has said this actually many times. Frank Schaefer produced a series of films that began touring the country in early 1979 called collectively Whatever Happened to the Human Race? which featured his father, Francis Schaeffer, in many ways, the intellectual godfather of the religious right, and a pediatric surgeon from Philadelphia, C. Everett Koop. And they argued in that series of films that any society that countenanced abortion would very quickly thereafter also embrace both infanticide and euthanasia. But uh, Frank has told me, and he was he's very emphatic about this. He said, when we started touring with that film early in 1979, the audiences were very small. We really couldn't whip up a lot of interest. And even as late as Ronald Reagan's appearance before this massive rally down in Dallas, Texas, on August 22nd, 1980, the abortion issue, he didn't even mention the abortion. He, what he mentioned was the IRS going after the tax exemption of these evangelical schools. He did not even mention abortion in that huge uh, evangelical rally in August of 1980. So it took a while for the abortion issue to kind of um, soak in as an issue that evangelicals were concerned about. And that was that preluded by what you talk about in the book with Jimmy Carter? And, and if you want to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, Jimmy Carter, I mean, this is one of the great ironies. I mean, I wrote a biography of Jimmy Carter, and I, in part because I wanted to try to figure this out for myself. Why is it that evangelical voters in 1980 would reject one of their own, an evangelical a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, in He's favor of— almost like Jesus, of, too. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, he's out building homes for the last 30, 40 years. I don't know. To me, that's the most Jesus thing ever. It's been remarkable. I mean, mean, he lives the gospel. I mean, Jesus called on 
his followers to care for the least of these, to provide shelter and, and food. And Jimmy Carter's been doing it really all of his life. And why, why would they reject Carter for a divorced and remarried? And that, at that time, that was a huge issue. A divorced and remarried former Hollywood actor. Hollywood was not exactly known as a province of piety for evangelical. <laughs> who, as governor of California, has signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in the country. I mean, on the face of it, it just doesn't make sense. And in many ways, it still doesn't make sense. But Carter, I, and we have to acknowledge that Carter had uh, rather stiff headwinds when he was heading for re-election in 1980 with the economy very, being very sour and the Soviets invading Afghanistan. By the way, does that sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's things that are uh, reverberating even today. But, you know, why they would... Uh, gravitate to Ronald Reagan as their political messiah is in many ways confounding. But I think, it, frankly, it has to do with racism, and I'm happy to expand on that as well. It does. Let's talk about that. But one thing I want to touch on, just to interject too, is that same point was used with Donald Trump. And, yes. well, I don't know, I don't see Hillary Clinton as a big religion person. I mean, I, I think she is. I know she quotes. I don't even know what her faith is. I, I know, But I know Biden I'm an atheist. I did grow up in uh, a cult, the Mormon church, and, until about 16. And so I understand the Bible. I understand white religion, et cetera, et cetera. Geez, you want to talk about a racist religion. Go back and read Brigham Young stuff. But I understand it very well. And to me, I can look at Joe Biden and go, that man is a religious dude. He goes to church like every Sunday. He prays. I, I think he prays about Anybody can say well, maybe he's not the best person in the world. I voted for him, full disclosure. But I think he's more Christ-like than Donald Trump. And Donald Trump can't even quote <laughs> things from the Bible when he's called out. And to see them embrace Donald Trump over a Joe Biden is just astounding to me. Well, I, Chris, I think the through line for this entire conversation uh, is racism. And I, I don't want to be reductive because I understand that there are other issues. But yeah. for me, in, in writing Bad Faith, one of the things that I really, uh, if I didn't know this already, I certainly relearned it in the course of writing the book, was that the real connection here between the birth of the religious right in defense of racial segregation and in defense of racism, to put it plainly, and the embrace of Donald Trump in 2016 and again in 2020, the bridge there was, frankly, Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan entered California politics in opposition to the Rumford Fair Housing Act that sought to ensure equal access to both rental and purchase of, of real estate. He was an outspoken opponent of both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Mm -hmm. Throughout his political campaigns, his entire career, he frequently invoked the racially charged phrase, law and order. And for me, the kicker, aside from his decimation of the Civil Rights Commission when he was president and his continuing support for South Africa, the apartheid regime, the kicker is the fact that he opened his general election campaign for the presidency in 1980, August 3rd, 1980, mm -hmm. in, of all places, I mean, you think of all the places he could have done this, and he was a master of symbolism, so he understood he was, what he was doing. He opened that general election campaign 
at the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I still can't quite believe it. And this, of course, was the place where 16 summers earlier, members of the Ku Klux Klan in collusion with the Sheriff's Department abducted, tortured, and murdered three civil rights workers. Mm -hmm. And again, Reagan, the master of symbolism, and in case anybody missed his meaning, he invoked that age-old segregationist battle cry on that occasion, I believe in states' rights. So I think that the bridge between the origins of the religious right in defense of racism, defense of racial segregation in evangelical schools, and Donald Trump in 2016, frankly, is Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I remember growing up in that age of Southern California when segregation was uh, brown, the brown thing with SCOTUS and, and something that was coming yeah. apart. But yeah, it, he raised himself on white religious Christianity power. He not only quoted what you mentioned earlier, but his, his favorite thing was, and the quote of the law and order thing comes from Nixon. And of course we know, right. sure. you know, sure. how, how racially charged that was the start of the war right. on drugs, which really was a racial war. But the other original lie he would tell is, is one of the foundations of original lie is the shining city on the hill. Yeah. 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 Right. And he was sure. the guy who brought that back. And that, that whole, that goes to the whole Christianity thing that the God given people, this land was, I was even raised believing that. God chose me as a special little being to come to America because I was special. And I guess the people in Africa got screwed or Europe got screwed or something. It was really <laughs> sick. It was really sick what I was taught. Uh, it really was. I mean, you're just – because I remember sitting there thinking, well, what did that guy do over there in Europe or China or wherever? What, what, how come I'm special and – but you are. And, and the Jesus and John, growing up with John Wayne and all, all the sort of thickness that goes that. But you really address it. There was a lot of things going on in California. There was a segregation. There was the there was the Hispanics, large amount of Hispanics coming in. And so he sure. used them as a whipping post. The, the things that they did with the Reagan administration that just took everybody back to the Stone Age, racially or minorities, was just unfortunate. And uh, yeah, it was all surrounding that white religion stuff. Yeah. Well, and you you also had the his frequent mention of the welfare queens, right? The women of color who were supposedly living off the public dole in lives of luxury. And so he was never able to produce any of these welfare queens, yeah. but he talked about them as though they really existed. And it turned out to be a rather powerful uh, campaign tool for him. Yeah. There was an interesting book we had Jean Gorilla on. I wrote Hate Monger, Stephen Miller's bio, and she oh. really documented the rise of what was going on at that time. In fact, that recent governor, the guy who ran for governor, who's the radio show guy, he's black. Oh, yeah. Uh, right, Larry yeah. Miller? Larry? Larry? Larry something, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he, he was a big radio proponent against everybody, including what was going on immigration. Basically, just Ronald Reagan really tapped into that and okay. set us back. And then Donald Trump seemed to just... I mean, just repeat the same playbook. It's like Nixon, Donald Trump. And then, I mean, even was it Willie Horton or what was the Willie. stunt that W. Bush, one of the George Bushes H. W. pulled? H.W. Bush. It was yeah. Willie Horton. Yeah, yeah Willie Horton. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the most despicable campaign ads and certainly in my lifetime. And I've seen a lot of them. Yeah, <laughs> that was interesting. So so, you found that there's this pattern going through the system 
of it almost seems to me and i'm a layman when it comes to legal stuff but it almost seems to me like the republicans constantly just put up these lawsuits that they know they're going to fail before the supreme court they're usually weak they're usually overreaching. I was surprised at the, well, I shouldn't be surprised because of the way the court is now, but I was surprised at how they'll just lob some of the most craziest stuff at SCOTUS and work it through the courts. They'll spend hundreds of million dollars of taxpayers' money to things they know they're going to fail, but you can tell what they're doing it for. They're doing it for votes. They're doing it to bring out the vote. They're bringing to fire up their base and support. And I often look at it and I go, you know, I used to be a Republican. So I would look at it and go, you're being played. That's a play. That's yeah. it's never going to pass SCOTUS because some of it's really extreme, where they're just eliminating abortions across the board and rape and everything else. And you're just like, that's not going to, that's not going to go. But they realize that there's more power in the money of, of the getting the vote out and control of power. How how much of this comes down to? My theory is this: we live, we like you said, we've never uh, fixed the original sin. I know Jamar Tisby wrote a great review on your book. We've had him on the show, and to me. We have two parties, and it just comes down I'm, – I'm condensing it a lot because they have multi, multifaceted agendas. We have two parties, one which recognizes that, that minorities are going to rise, and within, I think, it's 10 or 20 years, we're going to be a minority as white people. And those are going to be a factor. More females are in the workforce, et cetera, et cetera, and we're going to have more immigrants in the society, et cetera, et cetera. That's just a fact. There's no way – one of my favorite lines from No Country from Old Men is, you can't stop what's coming. That's humanity. Yeah. And then you have this 450 years of white power, of white controls, of whites being the majority. And it's about money. It's about government. It's about everything else. But really, Democrats see that there's a progression there. And you might as well just embrace it and roll with it because it's going to happen anyway. But it seems like Republicans are this party that's still holding on to the white power. And it's for white power for money, for whatever. But it's about white power and voting blocks. I mean, I've seen so many Republicans say, we're losing the battle of, of power because these immigrants are coming in and they're going to vote. And you're like, you're afraid of people voting? And, of course, we can see that going on in legislatures across the country. So that's really what it t comes down to me is the two parties. That's what I see as the core basis for the two parties. Am I wrong? What do you think? No, I think you're right about that. And what what I, I would extend a little bit further by saying that the, the one of the devices that the Republicans are using over and over again is – the the device of nostalgia that is trying to conjure this usually mythic golden past <laughs> when everybody was Christian, right? Everybody was, there was no homosexuality. There was no sexual deviance. There was no crime. And of course, you know, all of that is, is questionable at best, mm -hmm. but it's a very powerful tactic. It's a very powerful strategy to try to to say, look, we look at what we've lost and then point the finger. This is why we've lost it. This other side is, is soft on crime. You're hearing it. I mean, it's, it's magnified uh, just in the past few months or since Joseph Biden uh, <laughs> became president, right? It's, it's yeah. all the Democrats' fault. And in order to get back to this golden past, we have to, whatever they're saying, we have to clamp down on LGBTQ rights and things like that. And then we'll have you know, our golden age back again. And we won't. I mean, it, uh, I think for me, the event of the at least late 20th century that people really have not fully understood in terms of its consequences was really the Immigration Act of 1965, when Lyndon Johnson signed this bill into law that eliminated immigration quotas. 
And we're not talking here about quotas from south of the border, the, our southern border, but from Asia and, and Southeast Asia and India and so forth. And that has, within my lifetime and, and yours too, I expect, utterly reshaped the religious landscape of the entire country. I mean, I travel a good bit around uh, the country because this is my this is what I do for a living, in, in a sense, and I try to understand what's happening in terms of American religion. And I see Sikh Gurdwaras and Buddhist stupas and Hindu temples and places that I would never have imagined would crop up. But, you know, that's part of our multicultural mosaic, which frankly has defined our nation since the beginning. But yeah. a lot of people say this, is, this was the beginning of, of our decline. I don't think it is at all, but that's the rhetoric, and it's a very powerful rhetoric. Yeah, I'm an atheist, and I, I think there should be all religions. Everyone should be there. I think I was talking to somebody, and, and I said, look, I, if you want to put the Ten Commandments on a courthouse, that's fine with me, if, but you got to put everybody on the courthouse. Absolutely. Now, maybe that's wrong because of the Constitution, but I'm just saying. No. It would be fine I, with me, but you got to put like a, I don't know, you got to put an atheist thing there, so I don't know, there'd just be like a little plaque with no, some empty I, space yeah. or something. <laughs> there'd be like a, there'd be a Buddhist one and you gotta be, you gotta make sure everybody, but that's not what Betsy DeVos's Center for National Policy wants. She wants no, a theocracy. That's right. That's right. And, no, and, and, and you know, I, I, actually I was one of the expert witnesses in the Alabama Ten Commandments case with Roy Moore. Oh really? Wow. I was, yes. And that's essentially was my testimony was that is to say, as, as you just said, I would have had no objection whatsoever. If in addition to the Ten Commandments, you'd had a Hindu representation and even, and it is true, the Alabama Atheist Association actually said, you know, both members, no doubt, but anyway, <laughs> they actually asked to have their sentiments included in that space. Sure. And Roy Moore said, absolutely not. And that's what made it a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. If he'd allowed those other representations in that space, I wouldn't have had any problem with it. No no responsible judge in the country would have had any trouble with it. And here's the irony of it. And again, this was part of my testimony. Religion has flourished in this country precisely because it is not tethered to the state, precisely because of the separation of church and state. So when Betsy DeVos and these other people want to, to level this wall of separation between a church and state, that will fetishize and trivialize the faith. And that is the real problem here. And I speak, I say this as a person of faith. I mean, uh, <laughs> unlike you, I'm not an atheist. I'm a firm believer. And the First Amendment, the separation of church and state is the best thing that ever happened to this country in terms of religious vitality, because you have this kind of free marketplace where you have, as you said earlier, you have all this competition within this free marketplace. And that lends a dynamism to religion in America that is unmatched anywhere in the world. Yeah. I mean, freedom, it all comes down to that. And the interesting thing about the Betsy DeVos and what she, her real agenda is, and I believe if I recall rightly, she kind of has the, I think she has the same thing as that SCOTUS gal, the new SCOTUS gal, where she's, she belongs sure. to an doctrine of, of Christianity that's kind of violent. I forget the name of it. You might know. Calvinism? Well, well yeah, right. Yeah. It's a bit extreme. Yeah, she, she, yeah the, uh, she's, she's part of the reformed tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, but they want a theology, which to, to my understanding is they would not allow the other religions to be around. Right. I mean, they want supreme control. They want to, right. they want the Bible to be the constitution from there. Yeah, that's scary. Uh, yeah, 
It is, and, and the extreme form of that is something called uh, Christian Reconstructionism or theonomy, mm-hmm. and that's that gets into really scary stuff because these people are talking about uh, revising uh, the criminal code according mm-hmm. to Levitical principles and things like that. You'd have you'd have capital punishment for mm-hmm. juvenile delinquency and things like. That. I mean, it, it's people don't really realize it. But uh, if these people, that is Americans, don't really realize what's at stake here. But if these people really got in, in, in control, it's a scary scenario. Yeah, you're running into another American ISIS where we'd have cut off hands yeah. or headings or whatever the hell they decide they sure. want to do this week. And then me as an atheist and Catholics, I guess, and everybody else would we'd all be in Uyghur camps, being re reengineered yeah. or rebrained or whatever. And I'd probably be I'd probably be fed to the dogs like North Korea. But then I probably have to come. But ask any of my exes. I'm just so. What, as we wrap up, what do you see happening? Because it looks like from everything I'm seeing, Robert P. Jones studies this a lot. Everything I'm seeing, it seems like there's a, a battle going on in the white religious right of trying to take back religion. There's a lot of people that have left over Donald Trump. I mean, I sat and watched it and went. Even as an atheist, I go, "What would Jesus do? Uh, be a good person. Be good. It's simple laws. Do unto others as you would have people doing to you." But yeah, I wish more people would do that or that, that claim to subscribe to his uh, teachings. And so watching it, but yeah, it seems like a lot of people have really become disenchanted. What, what are you seeing? What, what do you think the future is of religion? And maybe it's in for a reformation? Well, I think, we're, yeah, I mean, we could certainly uh, do with the, uh, some sort of reformation or reformation. There was one scholar who I admire who says uh, we should have a reformation in the church every 500 years or so, and we're due. <laughs> and I think there's a case for that. But I don't think there's any question that Christianity is in trouble in this country. If you look at the figures, you look at the numbers, uh, yeah. the rise of nuns, that is N-O-N-E-S, nuns, no religious uh, affiliation is uh, really quite striking, particularly in a nation that has been unusually and in many ways incurably religious for most of our history. I'm actually writing a book about this right now. I'm finishing it up. Awesome. And what, I, what I'm trying to, to argue is that if Christians, and I'm speaking as a Christian myself, of course, uh, if Christians really want to uh, reclaim the faith and make the faith once again relevant to this country, which I think we should, frankly, mm-hmm. I think, and I mean no offense to anyone, including atheists, I'm not trying to yeah, we're not offended. convert anybody uh, necessarily, but uh, if the, the faith is going to be vibrant and relevant, we have to reconnect with the words of Jesus. I mean, that's the first step, I think, as well as the Hebrew prophets, Hebrew prophets calling for justice. Imagine that. Imagine if Christians or you know Jews as well, but people of faith uh, began echoing the words of the Hebrew prophets. I think we'd have a very different society. If we looked carefully at the words of Jesus, as we were just talking about, Jesus called on his followers to care for the least of these. In fact, he made that a criterion for entering the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And if you don't do it, he said, you're not going to be there. Those are pretty pretty harsh words, and I think we need to reaffiliate with that. But I think we also need to reaffiliate with the best of our own tradition. That is to say, people like Dorothy Day, people like uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, people like Charles Grandison Finney from the 19th century. Charles Finney, uh, just to, to embroider that point for a moment, Charles Finney, by any measure, the most influential evangelical of the 19th century, and he was unsparing in his criticism of capitalism. Free market capitalism, he thought, was demonic. 
he said that a Christian businessman is an oxymoron because business elevates avarice over altruism. Now, those are my words, not his words, but that was his argument. So I think if we're going to be relevant again as uh, as Christians in this in this country, we have to reaffiliate not only with the Bible, which is the foundation of the faith, but also with the best of our own tradition. And that's that's what I'm trying to argue in this book. And I would totally agree with you. I'd love to see that. I mean, the, me just watching Christians with Trump, it was just, yeah, okay. <laughs> we see where at. And I understand a lot of it, actually. I mean, I, I think it comes from some of the authors we have on the show. They saw him as an angel of destruction, as, an, as a bi- biblical angel of destruction, angel of retribution, of revenge, where he would punish us sinners, of course, me being, of course, the main one. <clears throat> he, uh, I've seen that movie, but no, it's it. But, but they saw him as a basically sleeping with the devil because he would be the angel of retribution. But in in hindsight, uh, it's really burned them. I think at one point there's been a drop of I, I'm just going off figure of my I think thirty percent of nons in the church in the last it, well probably since the inception of Trump. It's whatever the figure is, it's a huge dump, and I'm hoping that. Religion will, because I'm an atheist, but I believe that everyone should be able to believe what they have. If whatever you need to get through this life from beginning to end, mm-hmm. if you need to hold on to this or hold on to that or believe in that, go for it. Just just don't knock on my door on Saturday mornings and wake me up from my hangovers and all the hookers in the back. I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's only one. Um, <clears throat> that's right. Yeah, I'm just kidding, folks. Uh, I'm going to get... I, lost the hooker crowd now uh <laughs> but no i mean i don't want to this is why i love jewish people because they don't knock on my door they're not they're never trying to get me to join their religion they're just like we really don't care screw you and so they're wonderful people but no i believe everyone should be able to have their religions they should be able to flourish but i i what i hope is that and i think this is what's happening correct me if i'm wrong but I believe that what's happening is part of that reconciliation or, or kind of reformation. A lot of people leaving the church, even pastors, what they're, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to fight the white evangelical, the white nationalism part of yeah. the religion. Yeah. And that's really what needs to be exercised. We need to say, you guys go back to the KKK, get the F out of our party and our religion and F you people. You see it with, uh, <clears throat> you see it with Marjorie Taylor Greene recently going to, a yeah. neo-Nazi thing. I mean, it's scary. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you know, I, I suppose at least she's honest about it. Maybe that's in, in some ways that I, that's a serious comment because uh, a lot of these other people are kind of parading as people of faith and, and goodwill, and they're really not. Yeah. And I think Trump, part of the a big part of the appeal for of Trump to these evangelicals is, as you said, the kind of avenging angel, but also he speaks as well as anybody I've ever heard the rhetoric of victimization. I mean, yeah. he's always the victim, of course, in his in his world, but he speaks that very well. And I think a lot of evangelicals identify with that. They see themselves as being victimized in some way by the society. Now, again, I think that's, that's nonsense on the whole, but I, I think that's a big part of his appeal to this uh, the 81% of white evangelicals who, who voted for him. I still can't quite believe that number, but I'm sure it's true, but I, it is, it's incomprehensible to me that uh, he yeah. had that appeal. But I think that's part of it. 
the politics of victimhood, yeah, it's always interesting to me in this country. And I, I've still been working on some sort of podcast on victimization and the rise of it in our culture. And it's evident on both sides, whether you're both left or right, that there's a victimization mentality yeah. in our th- in our world. There's no self-actualization. And, and it plays on both sides. You see in the woke crowd, you see it in the thing. I'm a moderate Democrat, probably as middle as you can go these days. And I've been a Republican and I've been a liberal and now I kind of find myself more in the middle where I go, I go, we, these extremes are, are, I mean, they're not, I, I would say on the left, maybe they're not so much problems. Maybe I'm in denial or maybe I'm in denial on that, but the extremes are really our biggest problems. So the white nationalist extremes, the, the woke extremes, we need to start being more in the middle and being more Americans that come together and see, I often tell people, I, I'll take a lie detector. If Donald Trump would have been a democratic president, and Hillary Clinton would have been Republican or whoever put anybody over there except for Hitler. I would have voted for anybody but Donald Trump because I understood what he represented. But yeah, I would love to see. This is why I love books like yours and a lot of the authors that have been calling this out. The white nationalism part of the party and the religion needs to go. Like that whole thing needs to be expelled and people just need to live. I've read the Bible. I've read what Jesus wrote, what he was. He seems like a really great guy. He did a lot of nice things. I mean, honestly, as a person, I've often thought, what would Jesus do? Uh, be nice to people. Quit being a jerk, Chris. I don't believe in him. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't, and I'm not, I'm just saying this is my thing, but I believe in his teachings and it's a good advice. And a lot of religions have good advice. I shouldn't leave them out. And it's a good thing for being a good human being. And, but you want to see people live that truth. Like I try and live my truth. And so I think it's good what's happening. Religion has to, I think religion has to go through this reformation or else it's going to die because I think a lot of the youth are the people that are leaving in mass. And we're, we've seen that, yeah. No, I think yeah. you're a Jeffersonian, Chris. You're, you're in the mold of Thomas Jefferson, who who, who utterly admired Jesus and and saw him as a, a very, perhaps the most moral worthy, morally worthy teacher in history, but yeah. think that Jesus was divine. So, I mean, that's not a bad place to start. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's everything he taught. I mean, that's the reason probably why it's the number one book in the world and has been for, I don't know. 2000 years or however long it's been the i'm clearly not a bit historian so uh, full disclosure but yeah I, i'm really excited to see what your new book is going to be about on top of this one and i i think it's good i think the more people that are religious can get educated in this and like i said i'm all for everybody i mean i think when people meet atheists they're like oh you're trying to destroy us no i don't really care i got my little piece of work over here and i'm just living my life <laughs> all right. we're not signing we're not signing people up <laughs> <laughs> but no, I want to live in peace with everybody. And I, I do want us to come together as Americans, no matter what we are. We can have a little bit of political divide about stuff, but I'm glad you're calling out how the abortion thing is used as a, as a lightning rod. And, and I, I just see it being played so hard. What was interesting to me was when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, sadly, it was interesting how many people panicked and came out even on the right to vote uh, for Joe Biden because they were really worried about Roe versus Wade being overturned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think if it is, and I think we're going to have a, there's going to be a cataclysm in this country. I mean, I'm setting aside whether or not it's it's the right, you know, what, setting aside the issue itself, I think if Roe v. Wade is overturned, I think there's going to be a huge backlash in this country. And it, it, it frightens yeah. me, frankly. Frightens yeah. Me. I mean, we... Anything we can do to tamp down the extremism and then the the separation we have. Anything more you want to touch on or tease out on the book, oh, Miranda, before we go out? No, no, no. 
worldly conversation. I've enjoyed it, Chris. I've enjoyed it as well. It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to have, you know, I've always said that an author can have no greater compliment than have someone take his or her work seriously. And uh, <laughs> you clearly have, and I appreciate that. It's uh, been awesome very sauce. intelligent. Awesome sauce. And I hope that every, everything you guys are doing will just make it so we can have a better world and we can all get along better. That's all I want. <laughs> can we thought. all get along? <laughs> <laughs> There's a thought. There you go. Uh, give us your plugs so people can find you on the internet. My website is www.randallbalmer.com, and the book is Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. And let me – can I put my Jimmy Carter biography please, as well? Redeemer. Do. Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. I think it's a, and one of my better books, and the publisher has tried to – hide it but it's i grew up with let's just say that my family was not excited about jimmy carter and one of the things they were using was the uh panama canal and i remember going to uh school things about the panama and i was a child i had no idea jimmy carter i don't know i was like in elementary school and and so i didn't really know who he was and and i was raised with a prejudice against him and I didn't understand any of what Jimmy Carter was about, but in looking back on his life and what he did try to do as president, it was pretty amazing. In fact, if you look at, what is it, the is it the FDA and the EPA, and you study what he was dealing with at the time where we had rivers on fire and you had uh, Love Canal, and people really go back, but he really got out. But you look at what he's done. I mean, I, I saw the guy, it was a couple months ago or six months ago or something. I've lost time in, in COVID land, but he falls. He's like 90 years old or something. He falls. He's got a bruised freaking face and he's out building homes again. I mean, to me, if there is a president who's most like what I would think Jesus Christ is, and I'm no Jesus Christ scholar, clearly, I would think it would be him. I don't know. I, I, I give that guy a lot of <laughs> damn credit because... Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And and with the, just quickly on the Panama Canal Treaty, I mean, just uh, I, I think what he would he did see into the future. He understood that if the United States were going to have any meaningful relationship with third world countries, we needed to renounce imperialism, yeah. and that was his way to do that. And I think he was he. I mean, he got murdered for it you know, politically but and, and ronald reagan was one of the big killers there but I, I think that history has shown already that he did the right thing yeah. you know also calling attention to human rights abuses yeah again he was pilloried for that but i i, I think he was absolutely right and and I think history is, and one of the great things about history, and I love being a historian, but one of the great things is that every few years or every generation or so, history's kind of, historians kind of circle back and say, let's take another look. And that's what's happening with Jimmy Carter. And I think your assessment is what they're coming to. That is a guy who really understood who he was and who acted on his, his convictions. And I think he did. Yeah. What was interesting about him, too, is he didn't really embrace the the egotism of the office. He was really down to earth. And I think a lot of, if I understand people and read properly, you correct me if I'm wrong, that he was really, people didn't like that about him, that he right. was a little bit too homey, that he was a little bit too base. When I had John Ablon on the show, we were talking about Abraham Lincoln. And for a long time, I've been looking at Joe Biden. I voted for him. But I've been like, why is this guy's numbers in the doldrums? And of course, he's been through a first year known a few people have been through. I, I can't 
uh, remember a full extent of history, but he does have the same sort of Jimmy Carter softness to him, but there's not a power there. When I talked to John Avalon, we talked about Abraham Lincoln and, and he talked about how Abraham Lincoln could still be a person of, have that, have that, that presence of malice of strength and power that would come mm-hmm. across, especially when he yeah. speaks a lot of the charisma. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe what's lacking in Joe Biden, and maybe that was what was lacking in Jimmy Carter, not to present that as a lack, in, but as a way that people look at leadership, in that mm-hmm. you do have to have a malice of power that comes across, but then you also have the softness. Am I correct mm-hmm. in that assessment, or am I... Be right, and and I think Carter was not a great public speaker either. I think that, mm. especially in con- contrast with Reagan, who was really quite masterful at it, and I think yeah. that probably hurt him a little bit too. I've often uh, speculated. Right, people forget that in 1976, uh, running into going into that uh, presidential campaign, Reagan challenged Gerald Ford for the Republican nomination and very nearly secured the nomination. And I've often speculated that if Reagan had won the Republican nomination and won the presidency in 1976, given all of the historical events that unfolded during that time, the Arab oil embargo, the uh, Soviet invasion of uh, Afghanistan, Three Mile Island disaster. I mean, poor Jimmy Carter. I mean, he just got hit with everything. I think if Reagan had won in 76, I expect that he, too, would have been a one-term president. Yeah, being president late in the 1970s. I always, it's a modification of someone else's quote, but I always say the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. And thereby we go round and round with our folly. But, you know, if you think about it, Jimmy Carter was really an answer to the Republican failure under Nixon. And it was a repair time for America. Absolutely. So Joe Biden is the repair time for Donald Trump. Absolutely. And so, where does that you know, leave us? At who's next? <laughs> well, I mean, and frankly, Bill Clinton for George H.W. Bush with the economy yeah, and Barack Obama for the Great Recession of 2008. I mean, people, yeah. you know, that's that's where it's useful to have some historical perspective yeah. say, wait, wait a minute. You know, the economy's in the tank. Here comes a new president. He fixes it. And then, of course, things happen. But <laughs> I don't want to back to what Obama said for the, that got me through the last four years was, was it five years, I guess, well, four, five years ago. But as Americans, as our country, we zig and we zag and we zig and we zag and we zig. Yeah. And hopefully we always yeah. zag back. But yeah, we do seem to kind of bounce between the extremes, don't we? Maybe. Yeah, we do. I don't yeah. know. All right. right. Well, thank you very much. We got a good plug-in for the Carter book now. Guys, right. order up the book. It is available on uh, wherever fine books are sold. Bad Faith. Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. Uh, also check out Redeemer, Randall Palmer's book. Did I go to Randall Palmer? Randall Balmer's book, Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. You got a lot of books. How many books do you have here? I don't, I've lost count. I think it's, yeah, it's uh, like, up towards 16, 17, something like that. Bloody yeah. hell. Good job. Good job. Well, thank you very much, Randall, for being on the show. We've really loved it. Brilliant discussion. Chris, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com for just Chris Foss. Go to youtube.com for just Chris Foss. Hit all the, uh, the bell notifications, all that crap that goes on. See LinkedIn and all that stuff. You guys know the drill. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time.